Oh, are, you, are you still there now? I'm here. Can you guys hear me? Oh, cool. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> I think I think we lost you for a second. Yeah, well, I didn't say anything important, so uh, that's okay. <laughs> Excellent. An ale for me. And for my officers, in fact, ales for everyone. Oh. Turn backwards. With Rick and Rick and Will and Gemma. Oh, yes. <clears throat> Hello, welcome to another episode of Ten Backward, the Star Trek discussion podcast from the UK. Uh, I'm Rick Everson, and I'm joined, as always, by Will Turland. Hello. Gemma Turland. Hello. And Rick Palmer. Greetings. And t- today, for our 101st episode... We have got a special guest. In fact, maybe, maybe I, I, I was going to say the, maybe the most special guest we've ever had, but is that going to upset the other guests? I don't care. You know, this, we've actually got someone who's been on Star Trek, so this is pretty exciting. We are joined today by Noah Averback Katz, who has been playing Rin on Star Trek Discovery. Noah, thank you for joining us. I'm so thrilled to be here. Uh, I am the most important guest you'll ever <laughs> have. And I'm actually just upset that I wasn't the guest for the 100th episode. I can't believe you waited till 101 to contact me. This would have been the 100th episode spectacular. So I'm going to need you guys to just cancel your and delete your 100th episode. So that- <laughs> is, that, is that all right with you, Will? You've been editing it quite oh, no, solidly. It's, oh, it's been a lot of work, the 100th episode. It's okay. It's, it's gone. I've deleted it. <laughs> That seems reasonable, yeah. Yeah, I'm a pretty reasonable guy. I think that request made a lot of sense and wasn't about my ego at all. <laughs> Excellent. Well, I'm excited to be here, you guys. Uh, thank, thanks for having me on. No, no problem at all. Um, so you, you've um, you've been in two episodes of Discovery um, thus far as Rin, the Andorian. Rin the Andorian, he was born into the Emerald Chain. He tried to rally the people against them. People were beginning to listen. So she hacked off his antennae and made him the guy that plants this thing. I'm sorry. I have to do this. Try to relax. It'll only hurt for a minute. Get off me, traitor. You're, you're also sort of being, you're becoming quite well known on Twitter as, um, as a bit of a big Star Trek fan yourself. How long, how long have you been into Star Trek? Has this been a lifelong thing or uh, how did you get into it? Yeah, you know, some people have asked, like, what was your first Star Trek memory? When do you remember? And it's just been around and on ever since I've been alive, basically. My mom was a huge Trekkie and, you know, we sort of like grew up in the Star Trek uh, mid-90s heyday. So we were actually like, when I was growing up, Mainly the shows that were on was like um, syndicated next gen and the new episodes of Voyager. And then when I was about 13, 12, maybe a little younger, uh, Enterprise came out. And so that was really the first show I watched from the beginning, episode to episode. And my mom would kind of throw these, we called them Star Trek parties. This was before like a watch party was a thing. Um, and all of my friends and I would get together and we'd watch the episode. And then my mom would. Um, write up a quiz for all for all of us and whoever got the most answers uh uh right on the quiz like you know 
really, really, she was really honing that that ability to pick up like a random detail in Star Trek that like creates this huge amount of significance, like the way somebody said a word at one point or the color of somebody's costume that was on in the background for 30 seconds. So uh, she was training me from an early age to be, you know, really hardcore about this stuff. Um, and that's, that's kind of how I wound up uh, uh, how I am now. That is fantastic. <laughs> um, a few years back, we all used to gather a, sort of on a rough, roughly a monthly basis, and we normally pick a theme for the night, and we'd each choose an episode um, around that theme. So it might be Vulcans or um, some other thing, and we'd end up putting on our own little introductions, and uh, often in the form of PowerPoint um, yeah, presentations. But I think your mum having you do quizzes afterwards is is maybe. A, <laughs> best thing i've heard since that that's awesome yeah, that, that that's such a fun way to do like a little presentation on what you're about to i feel like so many star trek fans have like their own sort of mini dissertations about their own corner of star trek i know i do have like you know my diatribe where i'm like just waiting for somebody to listen as i talk about you know each racial trait or whatever insane thing that i'm thinking about all the time so i think that's a good venue and uh you know Something that uh, deserves to be shared with the world, <laughs> with the world if they'll accept it. Mm, absolutely. Uh, um, so, growing up a big Star Trek fan, when you uh, when you were getting into acting, was that was it sort of an, a bit of an ambition that one day you might get a role on Star Trek, or had it not really figured? Well, you know, <sighs> yes and no. I mean. I don't think I ever really thought that any, anything would ever really happen, especially because you know when I was sort of becoming a professional, that was really a, a, like when I, when I was in graduate school for acting and around when I was graduating, that was like a real lull in Star Trek. You know, the sort of shine of the first, uh, you know, Kelvin timeline uh, Star Trek movie had sort of worn off and this kind of next ones had come around and they sort of hadn't really found their step. And it was just the just the rumors, the rumblings that maybe it might remount on you know some streaming channel that no one had ever heard of or what didn't even exist yet. So it wasn't really in my mind that oh yeah, I want to be on Star Trek because there wasn't really a Star Trek to be on. Um, I do remember though when I had graduated in 2015 from school, um, I read you know some some like, you know, crazy internet ad that's at like the bottom of some website. And it said, you know, hey, they're thinking of booting up, rebooting Star Trek on something. And really the only time I've ever done this, I called my manager and was like, hey, look, if there's anything that comes up, uh, I want to audition for it. I want to do it. And of course, me being the absolute loser that I was, I never did. (laughs) (laughs) But my wife certainly did, and that was really the entry point into kind of you know being a part of the new Star Trek uh, Star Trek world, which was amazing. When Mary ended up getting going for the role of Tilly, were you were you on hand for coaching on the on all the Star Trek lore? Were you- you know, it's really funny because um, the way that that audition happened and and the way that she got cast was very atypical. She basically like somebody sent her an audition to make a, a self tape, you know, so she basically told me, hey, I have this thing for Star Trek. And I was like, oh my God, that's so cool. Can I read it with you? Can I like participate? So we went into her agent's office where they have a little booth set up for actors who want to do, you know, 
self-tapes, basically. So I read the role with her. Um, you know, it, it wasn't particularly like Star Trek heavy. It was, you know, I think a lot of the stuff with especially, oh, sorry, that that crunching upstairs is actually my wife returning. Um, uh, it was very much just like, it, it, it didn't strike me as particularly Star Trek heavy. Um, so we made the tape and had fun. And then we didn't really think about it ever again because she didn't hear anything about, uh, you know, a callback or a producer session or anything like that. Um, but at one point down the line, they asked her to do uh, what's called like a, a slate, which is essentially just like sort of a scan up and down to see how tall you are, what your body looks like, how big your head is, stuff like that. And she recorded this slate um, and she came in and she was sort of wearing like a loose flowery dress. And she, uh, as always, looked beautiful. But for the probably the first and probably the only time, I was like, I think that you should change and maybe put on something with a little bit more squared shoulder vibe, a little bit more military, you know, something something that, that lets them see you as an officer. And she was like, yeah, sure, whatever. I don't I don't know. And uh, and so I like to think that that little tiny piece of advice is what helped her get the role of Tilly is me having, having to change clothes at one point. If if my wife was cast in Star Trek, uh, that's you, Hello. Gemma, <laughs> and I and and I wasn't. I would be I, I I'd be jealous, you would perhaps even angry. <laughs> was there any like I I would? Was there any sort of I don't know? Were you, did you did you feel okay with it? You know, were you were you happy for or it? Were you, you just like crazy excited? Yeah. yeah, you know, I feel like it happened so fast. Um, she was basically like working on this play, uh, in New York that was sort of taking up all of her sort of acting and mental energy. And then she got the role basically out of the blue, um, and just like sort of sat down at dinner and was like, Hey, I got Star Trek. And she closed this play and then flew up to Toronto basically the next day. It sort of all happened too fast for there to kind of be like any sort of, Oh my God, like I wish this was me sort of stuff. Um, and then when I sort of like showed up at the, the, I can't remember the first time I was there, you know, on set or meeting the cast, everyone was so nice and so welcoming. And even, you know, people like Alex and uh, Alex Kurtzman and Akiva Goldsmith, they were just so excited that I was such a big fan. So it really felt like, in my own kind of special way, I was participating or I was at least sort of providing that, that sort of perspective of like, Oh my God, this is so cool. Like I think for some actors who, you know, like somebody like Doug or Sonequa who have done this sort of like sci-fi genre stuff, who have been a part of something that has like cultural cachet, they, they know how cool it is. But when I'm like, Oh my God, I'm in the hallway of the discovery and look over there, that's the transporter room. And like, oh my God, it's a it's a bed in sick bay. This is like the best thing I've ever seen in my entire life. I think that sort of energy is sort of like infectious and inspiring and makes people feel like, oh yeah, you know, this isn't just a TV show. This isn't just like some stupid sci-fi thing where we're blasting through space. Like people are excited. And I, I, I hope that that kind of energy is a little bit infectious and fun so that's what i thought i 
I brought to the table. And I was way too excited to get jealous. I couldn't believe they were letting me on set. And I was just constantly looking for things to steal that I could take with me or sets I wasn't allowed on. So I was just having too much fun to even really bother with anything else. That's cool because most um, when most people take things from the workplace, it's like a stapler or <laughs> <laughs> or yeah, like paper clips or something. But I, I imagine where you work, it was um, at least Star Trek, a Star yes. Trek stapler. <laughs> I was able to, to, to pull a couple of things uh, here and there, some stuff that I've gifted to my mom, some some stuff that I keep with me. And, you know, the other thing, which I think I'll, I think it's to say about, you know, my, my then girlfriend, now wife getting that show is she went from making like, you know, $530 a week off Broadway to getting paid significantly more, which sort of opened up some avenues in her life that, uh, that really sort of offset any kind of jealousy or unhappiness of her living in Toronto. It was, a uh, that was definitely a game changer as well in terms of you know having a career as an actor so um how did the opportunity for the role of playing rin come around for you yeah that's a great question you know i the first on that first day when i had met akiva i was sort of geeking out with him because akiva is such a star trek geek he was having just as much fun as me and he was like, oh, you know, we'll get you in, in uh, as an extra in the background. Like, we got to get you on the show. This is so fun. And I was like, you know, absolutely. Whatever. I will, you know, I will stand anywhere. I'll do anything, of course. Um, and we were sitting like sort of there was an after party after the first recording of After Trek, which was done remotely. So everyone was in Toronto. And we were sitting at sort of like a dinner table. And I was just blabbing to Akiva. And Akiva was blabbing to me. And somebody from... Uh, like a press person from CBS walked up and was like, I know you, like we've met before. And I was like, no, I don't think so. She's like, have you, oh, you've done something on CBS All Access. And I had um, done a guest guest spot on uh, the the Good Fight, which was like their kind of big show at the time. Uh, and she was like, yeah, that's, that's where I know you from. And I was actually sitting next to um, uh, Alex Kurtzman. He sort of looked over and was like, Oh, like this guy's not just like somebody who wants to be in the background. He's like a real actor. He's, you know, worked for the show before everybody else or for the, for the network before everybody else did. And, you know, kind of took note and I showed him all the pictures of me in my uniform from older conventions, which I had like, you know, conveniently kept on my phone because I wanted to show everyone. And I showed him the picture of my mom weeping after Mary had found out she was going to be on the show. And it was just that kind of thing where it, it, I think for people who work on the show, they work so hard. They're so committed. They sort of are just kind of always have their head down, you know, really, really trying to make everything happen. It's such a massive, massive project that to have somebody be like, hey, I love this. I love what you're doing. This is fun. I'm having fun. I think it feels really good. Um, and so uh, from there, you know, maybe like a year later, I actually auditioned for the role of Spock which was actually a, a sort of um, like a, a fake script of an Andorian. But it was as a Star Trek person, I was like, this is very much not an Andorian. This is definitely a Vulcan and I'm 90% sure it's Spock. Um, and I, they, I auditioned for that and they liked my tape for that. And they also cast the right person as Spock. And I think he's incredible. Um, and then an opportunity just sort of came up again. I was actually up in Toronto uh, at the beginning beginning of season three, and I flew back to New York to audition at CBS and did that audition there, and then just kind of 
got it from there. So it was just sort of happened very, very smoothly. Uh, once I had sort of, you know, made my presence known as like sort of a fan and as, as an actor. And I also think there's just such like a, an amazing history of sort of like couples working on Star Trek, you know, all the way from, from Gene and, and Nigel Roddenberry. It's just like so, so great. Um, one second. It should be, um, under the bed upstairs in the No, under the cupboard. No. Uh, that's Mary. She's accusing me of stealing her computer, but I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, you know, there's a, there's just, just like a great history of couples working on the show that, um, I don't know, I just feel re- really, really lucky to, to get to be a part of with, uh, with Mary. Hmm. And so with the role of Rin, did you know that it was going to be an Andorian you would be playing if you got the role? Um, gosh, I can't remember. I think in the script, I think in the script, they, I don't know. I, I, I don't think so. Actually, I don't think until like I got to the set or I was always sort of like picking up scraps of information from whoever would give it to me because I was kind of too afraid to like know his full story or know what they had in mind because I just, I just knew that I would get so wrapped up in like how big everything was or what was going to happen that I really just needed to stay like moment to moment. But what I would do instead was then like press all these prosthetics guys, like, Hey, what do you know about this character? What does he look like? <laughs> and I think like some guy was casually like, somebody was like, Oh, he's an Orion. And I was like, Oh, oh okay. And then the, uh, some other guy came in and was like, no, 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 he's not an Orion. That's totally wrong. He's an Andorian. So I was just sort of like finding it out on the fly. Did you, do much research for the role or did you just kind of think oh you know what i'm a i'm a star trek fan i've i've got this <laughs> i know what i'm doing uh, immediately what i did when i found out he was an andorian was i watched all of the shran episodes um from enterprise i'm glad we met in your honor i'll continue to support cooperation between the imperial guard and your species i'll take your blood to andorra wall of heroes not today uh i watched you know i watched like journey to babel and stuff but i feel like where i really drew some sort of information from was from all the enterprise episodes with with jeffrey combs and with shran um that was just so helpful because endorians are sort of like so ubiquitous and like star trekky and so like wonderfully alien but for something that has like is so recognizable as Star Trek. There is like such little lore around them, even like third party lore, you know, like they, they, they you know, there's that one uh, Andorian in uh, the offspring that's like in the holodeck that looks like absolute garbage. Uh, <laughs> don't re- you know, they like vaguely mention one in Deep Space Nine here and there. And I don't even really think they come up in Voyager at all. Um, so really I just watched everything in enterprise because that's really where, you know, whatever, 50 years later that you get actually know what Andorians are and what they're about. And so I would say that watching that and watching Jeffrey Combs performance and watch him, like I, I, I read an interview that he did and he, one of the reasons, you know, for somebody who'd been on Star Trek so many times, he was like, well, look, I don't want to go on and just, 
you know, play a background character. I want to do something interesting. And what are the things that interested him about playing Andorians in this interview, he said at least, um, was that there was so little known about them or so little in canon about them and getting to kind of build that and essentially like build uh, the canon, the personality for an alien species really appealed to him. And so I was just sort of looking to him for cues and for his acting choices as to like what this species was about. Brilliant. And I mean, um, Sharan is such a brilliant character in Enterprise and Je- Jeffrey Coombs as well. It's, is uh, such a great performance, I think. Yeah, did, I'm totally obsessed. Did you, did you sort of think, oh, these, these are some big shoes to fill? Did it make you feel sort of apprehensive about uh, being an Andorian? Well, yeah, uh, yes. You know, I think I think the biggest challenge I felt was like, how do I, how do I honor and include what he was was doing? You know, how do I make that a part of my performance, but also sort of include what is being asked for me in this script? You know, so I think what what sort of stressed me out or or gave me you know kept me up at night was sort of finding the balance between, you know, what he had set up as Andorian, capital A Andorian, and also what was being asked for in the script, which was something maybe a little bit different. And that was the thing where I was like, I really, really hope that I don't, you know, lose I don't lose the sort of trekkie audience by and they're watching that well this isn't an andorian you know i don't i don't buy this this is just like a guy in a mask doing his thing so that was definitely something that especially after the fact where i was looking back and you know second guessing and being like was that did i do that was it there enough you know so that's that sort of has been the thing that i've been keeping an eye out for and, and thinking about a lot uh, the, the first time that you would start getting put into makeup, um, what was that like? As, as they sort of built up the, the the mask that you would wear for the character, did you start to feel your blood getting colder? And, and imagine imagine your name on the on the wall of heroes. <laughs> yes, yes. You know, the first time I put on that makeup, it was very much like a makeup test. And it was very hard to get like a read of who this guy was, you know, was he like sort of a, a folk hero or was he like a, you know, young upstart or was he a, you know, a a sort of lost soul. So I was definitely trying to get a sense of who he was. And then I was also like walking around set and had this experience, which would happen over and over where I'd like walk by someone like, I think it happened actually with Michelle Yeo. I walked by Michelle and I was like, you know, hey, Michelle, how's it going? And, you know, she obviously knows me and would say hi. And she sort of just like looked at me sort of side-eyed and like like half-waved. And I was like, oh, that's right. An alien just waved at her. <laughs> so I got that a lot where I'd be like, hey, Sonequa, how, how, you know, how are the kids doing today? And she's like, who's this stranger asking about my child right now? <laughs> that, was, that was really the first day of makeup was like realizing that nobody knew who was under here uh sort of trying to figure it out and then the other thing i really realized was that i think i think maybe the first or second day we did that test there was a table read um for the for 306 for scavengers and <laughs> it's a pretty long table that they they do the table reset or did you know in in 
pre-COVID times. And so I was at one side of the table and the person who I did all my scenes with in 306, or most of them, David, uh, was at sort of the other end of the table. And I realized very quickly that I could not hear anything he was saying because there were no ear holes in it. So, and David was sort of talking very normally, very quietly. He was kind of like eating lunch. So I would have to look over at his mouth, lip read and hope that he had finished speaking. And then I would just sort of randomly say the line out into the ether and hope that the timing was right. When you're on set on Discovery, <clears throat> do you get much time to spend with the with the other actors or is it? Or is it sort of more, you know, business-like? No, you actually have a great, there's a, there's a really nice camaraderie on set. You know, there's a ton of downtime in between shots and in between setups, stuff like that, um, where you can just hang out and goof around. I think things are different for the, the cast right now because of COVID. Uh, you know, a lot of those regulations are different for them. But when I was there, it definitely was really, really fun to just get to hang out and be goofy and get to know people, get to know David. But at the same time, being in that mask uh, sort of like short circuits your brain. So, you know, the sort of um, sharp wit, which I have, the, you know, the, 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 the ability to, 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 to keep up in conversation was completely lost. I'd be like sitting there and they'd talk about <laughs> about a topic and I'd be nodding and laughing and then they'd move on. And then like 30 seconds later, I'd like throw in a comment, but my brain was just moving so slowly because it was so overloaded with stimulus that I just like couldn't really keep up. But it was, it was so much fun to get to hang out with everybody, especially because I had hung out so much on set that like I knew I knew the whole cast, of course, but I also like knew the crew, you know, I would go to set and sit and just watch with the headphones on and watch shooting. So to get to feel like I was on the other side of the camera and get to prove myself was a really, really personally gratifying feeling. Um, one thing I'm curious about is that when the, um, when you got put into makeup, the, did they at least let you have antenna before they cut them off or did you only ever get the stubs i never had antenna the mold of the mask was made with no antenna so uh, i i never never really got my balance right as an indoor <laughs> you know I, I never never had them you know there's a yeah yeah never but they grow back so you never know right <laughs> they take nine months to grow back if left untreated with electrical stimulation and brisk cranial massage, you'll be back to normal in half that time. I haven't really addressed it on Twitter. I will eventually, but, you know, I have my own personal headcanon on it. There were some lines that I can't remember if they were cut or if it was just sort of things people were speculating about. I just think, you know, Osira, who we're going to meet more of, in her approach to brutalizing someone is so much different than like Archer's approach, which was, you know, knowing that they would grow back and doing something with that in mind. I think Osira knows that they grow back and knows enough to make sure that they don't grow back. If you, if you know what I'm saying, that's my, that's my sort of uh, off script head cannon, which, uh, which I sort of live by at the moment. Oh, we've talked a bit about the, how great the Andorians are. Um, is there another any other race of Star Trek that you would have liked to have played? That's such a good question. I, you know, sort of in keeping with uh, 
with the sort of lore creation. I think playing a Kelpian could be really fun. I think there's so much more to be explored based on what Doug is setting up. You know, we, we don't get very many interactions of Kelpian to Kelpian. So I think there's a lot to be explored of how that culture works, both on the planet Kelpian to Kelpian, but also maybe even in Starfleet, on Discovery, on another ship. I think that could be really fun. And I think I really love... I really love like Cardassians um, and especially like a kind of Garrick, Garrick Cardassian sort of, you don't really know what's going on with them. That's sort of hiding behind a smile, the malevolence of them, but also sort of the politic of them. I just think as an actor, that would be really fun to, to get to play with. Oh, that that would be amazing. We we definitely need to see more Cardassians in Star Trek. I remember in the audition script that they mentioned that there are some background Cardassians. I think have been on Discovery so far, and I remember in the audition script they had mentioned something about it, but I think it it must have gotten cut. So they're out there. I think I think that's the beauty of um of the of where Discovery's gone this year is that we've got so many of these races now open up for exploring them in a whole new way and where they are. So I'm, I'm hoping at some point Cardassians and many, many others like the Klingons will find out yeah. what, what they're all up to this far in the future. So. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think a lot of like the approach, even with the Andorians is like, yes, you know, Tran sort of set the tone, but that was, that was a really, really long time ago, you know, mm-hmm. both with this, with the jump that discovery made, but also, you know, with the jump from Enterprise to Voyager, Deep Space Nine, like that's a very, very long time. Oh, um, you in you're in obviously episode six, Scavenger, and then you're in episode eight. Um, and episode eight was directed by Jonathan Frakes, right? Yeah. So on top of being a lifelong Trek fan, then you get to be in Star Trek, <laughs> and then you get to be directed by Will Bloody Riker. How how was that? Oh yeah, totally unreal. It was so nerve-wracking. I was so terrified. He could see in my eyes that I was just a huge dork and was like, oh my God, I can't believe I have to deal with this. But he's a brilliant director, you know? He, all the actors love working with him. You know, the the sort of production team loves working with him. He's super efficient. He's super smart about his shots. He's just an, an incredible director. And he just has so much, like, Star Trek st- street cred that there's just a huge amount of buy-in, you know, to everything that he's trying to do. And I think also like he is able to keep the set really light and fun and committed because he's like, you know, I don't really have to make my mark on Star Trek. Like it's there. And I'm just here to like direct a kick-ass episode. Um, Yeah, it was all, it was, but it was at the same time, it was just, it was so exciting and so nerve wracking. I think the first day that we worked together was, it was just me and Emily Coots, who plays Detmer and Grudge the Cat. Uh, And we all sort of bonded around, you know, how difficult uh, and what a diva Grudge was. So I feel like that sort of bound us together uh, in in a very good way for me. You just have to keep the pressure on. Go back and... What the hell is it? What's that noise it's making? It's a cat. What is that? Like a pet? 
I was going to ask, actually, what was Grudge like to work with? You've kind of answered that question, I think. <laughs> I feel like that scene was supposed to be how Grudge sort of hops in my lap and is comforting me while I'm scared. But right at the beginning, I was like, this cat does not want to be here. It does not like me. You know, I'm sort of doing like the classic shaking around and yelling as the ship is banging into this and that. And this cat was not having it. And so I, I turned to to Jonathan. I was like, look, like I know I'm supposed to hold this cat um, through the whole scene or whatever, but my arms are getting tired from pinning it to my body because it wants to leave so bad. And I genuinely think I might suffocate it if we do it. But if I just like open my arms, it immediately jumps out and runs to the back. So can I like halfway through just sort of let this cat go? And he was like, great. I love it. You know, the less time we're trying to like get this cat to, to stay with you, the better. And then we spent a, a ton of time trying to like get the cat to jump up on the console or jump into my lap. And I think ultimately what we, uh, we went with was that one of the stagehands picked up the cat and then threw it into my lap. that's good enough for today that's what we're getting is is the cat that big in real life that's not a special effect right (laughs) c is the cat that's just a big huge cat who by the end of that day of shooting looked at me with pure hate in its eyes and i (laughs) for the first time i'm truly glad i have this rubber mask on my face because i think this thing might straight up try and you know pull my lip off or something (laughs) Um, I'm a, I'm a really big, uh, Michelle Yeoh fan. Uh, I, I was just wondering what was it like working with Michelle Yeoh? She's amazing. She's like, I, I, she, she has no business being as nice and as sweet and as kind as she is to everybody. You know, she's just like such a, such a massive legend. She is just the coolest person on the world. She can just like kick your head into space but she, you know, she always remembered me, which when you're sort of somebody's husband on set really, really feels amazing when somebody, you know, remembers who you are and is excited to see you and jokes with you. And, uh, and I just think that she, her acting is, is, I love her on the show because I feel like she sort of straddles the line between the sort of campiness of the original series or of you know, of enterprise or of the sillier kind of like heightened episodes. Um, and also is able to totally drop into the sort of serious, um, grittiness that discovery can bring to the table. And I think she just does an amazing job. Um, and every, I, I never got to see her fight, but everyone who has seen her fight is like, it's insane. She's basically like telling the stunt people how to do it. And, and they're all just like, oh, yes, absolutely, of course. So, And she also can, like, learn a fight in, like, 30 seconds. That was the thing. She's like, yeah, kick here, spin, punch. And she's like, I got it. It's mm-hmm. just absolutely insane. My favorite Michelle Yeoh story I go on about all the time is when, when she was working on um, Police Story 3, mm-hmm. and she does a motorbike stunt. I just watched that. Ah, oh, have you? Oh, it's, it's so good. It's unreal. And <laughs> crazy, too, about that is she – I was watching that stunt and I was like, she could still do this. <laughs> and I, I read that she'd, I, she hadn't, she didn't really know how to ride a motorbike. And I think originally they were going to get a stunt double to do it. And she was like, no, 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 no. I'll, I'll learn how to ride a motorbike. 
and then just do one of the most dangerous motorbike stunts in like, <laughs> the history of movies. <laughs> Absolutely psychotic, but like, no, she's like, yeah, no, I, I can do it. It's fine. It's crazy. <laughs> just, just an absolute legend. And I, and and Doug Jones, of course, is a is a is a massive um, genre actor. Um, do you do you get to spend much time with him at all? I got to spend a ton of time with Doug. We would be in the chair together sometimes in the morning. At the beginning of the episode, when he shot in Iceland, I went over and visited Mary in Iceland, and we they kind of did all their scenes together uh, early on. So we would have breakfast and dinner, and, and we got to just like spend a lot of time together. Doug is another one of those people that is just like so legendary, so nice, you know, so, so sweet, truly a, a, a sweet, kind, caring person. And also, you know, there's that saying of like, you know, they did it backwards in high heels. Doug is literally doing it in high heels without the heel. You know, I, I, he, like, I, I found working in prosthetics to be gratifying and fun, but also extremely challenging extremely mentally and physically taxing it sort of takes all of your energy to remain calm to be able to act to not sort of just like be like get me out of this and doug is doing it day in day out he uh you know he truly doesn't have any ears he has no nose so anytime like his nose itches or he has a runny nose it sort of just drips down the mask and pools in the mask <laughs> he's wearing these insane shoes that make him look like he's a horse and are like, I, you would put those on somebody to literally torture them. Um, and he's also wearing prosthetic gloves on top of everything. So like in between sets, you know, he can't go to his phone. He just sort of has to sit there. He can't really maneuver anything. You know, getting out of costume is like a big deal for him. And he also has these contacts, which you can see on his eyes how thick they are. They look to be about a quarter inch thick and they completely obscure his vision. They just give him a tiny, tiny pinpoint spot of vision in the center. It's insane how he's able to convey so much feeling and emotion and personality through Saru, I'm just sort of in awe of what he's able to do. It, it's amazing. And and he's just like the best dude too. It's it's amazing. Oh, cool. And we 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 love that he's uh, he's the captain now in, in yeah. season three. It feels like he's he's earned it, you know, he put the yeah. time in. Yes, he's, that, it, he's such a good captain too. Such a good captain. So in in the uh, in the sanctuary you get to play a scene um, opposite Mary. Cobb? Which one of you is the captain? Uh-uh. Try again. This time with the respect the rank deserves. May I speak with the captain, please? And uh, what was that like to, to prepare for? That was so much fun. You know, we hadn't acted together since school, uh, probably five or six years previously. So it was very exciting and very nerve-wracking. I <laughs> I was like, you know, I'm going to come in hot as hell and I'm going to be like, where's the fucking captain? Get out of my way. I'm coming after you. We're going to really have these sparks flying and everything. And I came in and did the thing and, and Jonathan pulled me aside. He's like, hey, you know, you, you just got to kind of just just bring it down a little bit. I don't think <laughs> that, you know, you're not going to battle. You're just you just want the thing. I was like, oh, my God, I can't believe it. You know, I totally blew it. Yada, yada, yada. Um, and, and I was looking across and Mary seemed like cool as a cucumber. She was totally in her element. She was totally relaxed. I was like, damn, you're so good at this. I can't believe it. And we were walking home, you know, after the, after the day was over, we walking back to our trailer. I was like, 
oh, what a day. And she was like, me too. Jonathan pulled me aside and said, I totally had to cool it out. I was coming in way too hot, getting ready to fight with you. So <laughs> both of us sort of were so ready to like, you know, really just give it to each other. And Jonathan pulled us both aside separately. It was like, uh, you need to both relax. Um, so it was very, very funny and very fun that we both have the same experience. <laughs> It's a um, it's a really cool scene actually because I I really like the the sort of trope that um, Tilly has where she'll she'll put her you know a canteen tray down on a table yeah and someone sitting on a, on their own and just go go and talk to them and it was like it, it came off as such a sort of warm scene yeah, yeah. I, I, that that scene in particular I thought was really well and you sort of get to for the you get to see this character opening up a little bit in terms of Rin sort of making that you know, weird Federation summer camp joke, but also you can see him sort of letting down the guard and then sort of dropping his sort of knowledge that he has. I think that played really, really nicely. I think both of our scenes together, I was really, really happy with. I need to tell you something, something that will give you an advantage. They're running out of dilithium, the chain. That's why Osiris wants me back. I'm the only one who knows. YouTube too. And that that episode actually, I mean, you, your character is very much central to the story. No, I couldn't uh, believe it. They're Rin. I need Rin. Rin, where's Rin? I was like, geez, I feel very special right now. <laughs> <laughs> you are in high demand. Exactly. What was that like when you when you first read the script and you were like, oh hell, okay, I'm 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 kind of a main character in this episode. Was that was that a you know a pretty good feeling? Yeah, you know, it was great. It was sort of like I was just sort of really hitting the stride of feeling comfortable in the mask, of feeling comfortable on set, of sort of getting a chance to like do a couple of different things in one episode. So I don't know. It just it was just so much fun, you know. It was just so much fun um, uh, to to get to like really actually be a part of the main storyline in a way, and have everybody sort of questioning where I am and stuff. And I, it was just. Just it was just just so much fun, you know, to feel like in that classic Star Trek way, I'm sort of the 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 thing that the story is turning on, you know, whether or not he what he's going to do or how everybody's going to respond and how people respond to the challenge. It just felt very fun to be sort of the crux of a Star Trek uh, dilemma. But I'm afraid you can't operate under the observational umbrella while you're harboring a wanted criminal named Rin. Mr. Rin's capture. You have to give up Rin. If Mr. Rin has committed serious crimes, let's give up Rin. I want Rin. You have him. Transport Rin to my ship. And bring Mr. Rin to the bridge immediately. Yes, sir. One one thing we wanted to ask about actually was the we'd heard that that um, you were involved in a Dungeons and Dragons group uh, yes. with the cast. Is that is that right? That is correct. Yeah, I, I started up or, you know, participated in starting up a game with Anthony and uh, Mary, Emily Coots, Ian and, uh, and Blue, two of the new cast members. And we've got that kind of uh, going strong. We just played last Sunday. We do all our sessions over Zoom uh, because of the COVID stuff. Uh, but that's been really fun. And it's been really, really fun to see the response. I, I can't believe it, but it's amazing. It's so great. I've I've seen some of the pictures been posted. I think uh, mainly on Anthony Rapp's account. Yeah. What's, yeah. Uh, what's the hat you're wearing? <laughs> uh, 
you know, well, during Halloween, I went to one of like the spirit Halloween stores that we have here, which are just these like stores. I don't know if you guys have them, but they just sort of like pop up in October. They just sell Halloween stuff and then they close down. They find an abandoned building, sell Halloween stuff. And I went to one and it was right when we were starting it, starting. And I feel like one of the things about D&D is like, it can be really hard to just like feel like you can just go for it, you know, whether that's a character voice or making a bold decision in game or creating a character who you're really excited about or feels personal to you. And I thought, you know, a part of the DMs, what I think part of the DMs job is to like both help facilitate the story, but also to get the players comfortable and invested. And I thought if I'm wearing this insane witch's hat, Nobody will feel sillier than I do. And so that way people can be like, well, I can make this huge decision. He's wearing an idiot hat that's going to go on the internet and everyone's going to see. So like, I'm good to go. So that's sort of my thinking behind, uh, behind my witch's hat. But I, I think it, you know, it's, it's, turning into, it's turning into a mainstay, I think. Have you, um, had you always wanted to just play the Dungeons & Dragons or do you thought about um, doing one of the Star Trek role-play games would yeah. that just be a little bit too much close to the bone with considering your day jobs yeah you know i don't think the rest of the cast would be too you know what anthony is interested in anything nerd anything geek so i'm sure he would be on board for anything i don't think the rest of the, the rest of the cast is like i mean one of the great things about playing D is it it really gives you a chance to just like be done with work and do something else you know and not have to sort of in, in engage in the same thing so i don't know if there'd be anything there but i have sort of been thinking you know well is there is there interest in running that game do people like it maybe maybe for people who are you know star trek involved or star trek and jason who wanted to sort of get involved in the whole you know milieu or culture again it's it's on the periphery it's on the periphery of my mind right now definitely when we did our 100th episode, which, uh, which of course I've deleted in favor of this one, <laughs> um, we, we, we interviewed a, a lot of other Star Trek podcasters and we, we sort of asked um, sort of the same questions. Um, and one of the questions we asked was, do you have a favorite Star Trek series and episode? I was wondering if, if you have a favorite Trek series and episode. Wow. Yeah. You know, other than Discovery, which of course is going to hold a very, very specific and special place in my heart. You know, I think my favorite series might be Enterprise. I really do. I know that's insane, but I feel like Enterprise forces you to confront everything that is good and bad and silly and broken and works in Star Trek. Like you, you can't, with Enterprise, like, you know, I feel like with the other series, there's good episodes and there's bad episodes and you ignore the bad ones and you love the good ones. With Enterprise, you really have to take the whole thing. You can't cherry pick what you like from it. You can't cherry pick this idea or this moment. You really have to like accept it for what it is, uh, which, which I like. I like that in Star Trek. I like that it's imperfect as, as both like a, uh, a story, you know, that is getting told and also as like a media property, you know, it's not the perfect show. It never has been. It never will be. There's places that it falters. And I think finding real joy in its campiness and its bizarroness 
that brings me just a lot of pleasure. And I think it's actually a great way to introduce people to Star Trek who are maybe a little intimidated by like, oh, well, you know, it has to be this way. It has to be this thing. I have to have this relationship to Cisco or Data or, you know, whatever. Um, that, I think I think I'm really coming around to that being my favorite series. Um, and I think my favorite episode is probably The Offspring from Next Gen. I know it's not a Enterprise episode, but I think that, episode really encapsulates for me what I love about Star Trek, which is a deeply personal and emotional journey that could only happen in and on Star Trek that everyone who is watching can relate to in a different way, can bring a different experience to, can see themselves in that episode because it is so specific to the characters because Data has such a specific reaction, a specific way of uh, dealing with things uh, in that episode, because everyone sort of reveals their flaws in that episode, but also their strong suits. That episode, I feel like, is sort of, for me, that is the zenith of a, of a Star Trek episode. Okay, it's, it's an absolutely heartbreaking ending as well, yeah. The Offspring. I feel, uh, I feel emotional even thinking about it. I love you, Father. I wish I could feel it with you. I will feel it for both of us. Thank you for my life is so emotional it is such a heartbreaking ending but then there's also this other thing you know of data using that contraction at the end of it sort of being about about growth you know it's not what i do love about that episode is it's not just a tragedy you know it's not just somebody having this thing and uh, an enemy beaming on and blowing it up it's 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 it, it encapsulates the whole experience including the silliness of the kiss with Riker and the loss and the growth, not just of data, but of all the other characters who sort of participate as this. And also I, what I loved is how true they remain to data's experience, which is that, you know, he's not sad. He can't be sad. He experiences it in a different way, which I think is so true for human feelings. Sometimes there's the idea of how you're going to experience and then the actual experience of it is so different than what you expect or so different from what people expect of you that it just feels, it feels very, very relatable. One thing um, I'm interested to know your um, opinion on is that obviously in the third season of Discovery, it's moved into the 32nd century. And I know that that's received a lot of um, positive feedback that they've de- they've decided to make that creative move for the show. Yeah. Um, did you notice that um, the 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 crew and the actors did they feel like did they feel that too? Did they feel like the show had been given a bit more freedom to be its own thing? Yeah, I I think so. I think so. I think they were optimistic about it. You know, I think that I remember early on Sonequa was sort of questioning. <clears throat> and being like uh just like asking like do you guys feel more a little bit like less tied to canon you know i think that discovery sort of when it started it it was trying to thread such a such a difficult needle of 
essentially like relaunching Star Trek, you know? That's really what it had to do in the first two seasons is relaunch this massive property and sort of thread the needle between telling an interesting Star Trek story, honoring all the old fans, acknowledging the sort of ways in which they're trying to tie it into, you know, existing canon and above all, make this massive corporation CBS happy, you know, make sure that, that they feel encouraged to keep producing Star Trek shows, because if they look at discovery and they're like, well, we don't like this, then that's the end of that, you know? And there was such a huge amount of turnover uh, internally, both at CBS and within Star Trek that it was been, it was very difficult to kind of find a solid footing, even starting with Brian Fuller, you know, (laughs) He originally was producing it, and then he's moving on to something else. And I also think it's such a it's so it was so difficult because the show basically premiered right around I can't remember it's like a week after you know like just right around the 2016 election when everything sort of the whole sort of political ideological ideological spectrum sort of just shifted in this massive way. And the, you know, so how to respond to that when the show's already been shot was so difficult, you know, how to respond to that when you're starting to write the next season, it's just incredibly difficult. And I do think that jumping this far in the future does allow some more freedom, uh, does allow some more creativity. And I do think that people feel excited to get to try something new and not feel like they have to thread this needle of, you know, tying all these strings together, which they've already done. I, I think that's that's the case too. It's like, we don't need to do that again. We've, we've already done that, you know? Mm, and one thing for me, it, it seems like m- making that move to, to set it in the far future allows for a lot of, a bit more fan service. Because I know in this, in this season, we've already, there's already been little nods towards Voyager. So we've seen the Voyager J and there was the yeah. USS Nog. And the mention of the USS Yelchin, which were all sort of nice little touches that have, that seem to allow a bit more, a bit more fan service and maybe a bit more engagement with uh, with Star Trek fans in general. Is that is that something that you you think? Well, you know, been- I, I think that like it allows like what's more fan service than Pike and Spock? You know what I mean? True. What's more yeah. fan service than the Enterprise? But what I think it allows them to do is is do it in a in a subtler way that isn't that can't be construed as sort of an a, a confrontation you know we're putting our the the writers the creators are not trying to like put their stamp on what we think of the original series you know what i mean that's not what mm-hmm. they're out to do and so they're not trying to have an antist- uh, uh, an antagonistic relationship with any of the fans so when they're able to like do these nice touches of the USS Nog and stuff like that. I think it does free them up to say like, look, like we are very much in touch with, with what's going on. We are not sort of in our own secret Star Trek bubble where we're saying we're going to do our own Star Trek and nobody else is included and, and screw you if you don't like it, you know, and we can sort of now put these things in and I think it's exactly that. And just like sort of acknowledge, you know, everything that's going on and and just just do it in a way that uh, that doesn't that I mean, look, I, I, that doesn't tick people off. You know, it's hard 
when you're making a show like this, people are going to get upset. People are going to get angry. That's okay. That is what it is as long as you're not being a total asshole. Uh, but I do think it allows them what you're saying to kind of just like nod and say like, we are, you know, we're on the same team here. We're, we're on the team. As you've, um, as you proclaimed enterprise, your, your favorite series, um, that kind of means I, I have to ask where you stand on maybe the most divisive issue in Star Trek fandom. Episode? Uh, Faith of the Heart, the theme song. Yes, yes. Because yeah. <laughs> I've got faith of the heart. Go where my heart will take me. It's a great song. I love that song. Yes. Uh, I don't love the remix they did on season two where they added more mandolin and took away the guitar, but I just think it really, like, just, it just goes to the heart of what I was saying. It just, like, really sums up, you know, just what a bizarro thing it all is. It's all so weird. It's so weird that people love it still. It's so weird. Everyone's reaction to it, getting dressed up in costumes. I know it's normal now, but when I was growing up, it was weird. And I think it is still weird, but it's weird in a beautiful way. It's weird in a way that I love. And I love Faith of the Heart. And I uh, I will sing it all the time, and so will my mom, and it's a perfect song. I can I have to admit, like when I first heard it, I thought, it may, have they got Scott Bakula to do the theme tune? <laughs> <laughs> like Kelsey Grammer with Frasier. Oh my god, that would be amazing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so a, another Enterprise question, actually. I, um, what what do you think of the uh, the, the very final episode? It's- Absolutely bonkers. It's one of the most insane pieces of television I've ever seen in my entire life. Uh, I, I feel like everybody who worked on it is scarred for life. Um, and I absolutely love it. It's just so, it's it's really, really, it's a difficult, it's difficult, you know? It's really like they just have to like, the season's over, the show's over. I mean, bless them for like trying to be like, well, we're not just going to like end it on a Star Trek episode. Like, let's actually just try and end the series. Uh, but, uh, yeah, very, very weird. Uh, just like, Hey, this guy just, uh, the shows ends with, uh, by the way, this guy you love, he blew up. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. It was like in, in any other episode, he would have found a way out of that situation. Yeah, that was the, that was the thing too. It's like, it's not like it's like the Uber villain. That's like the Zindi are going to blow up earth. It's just like, I, it's like some guys like left a bomb on the ship and he's like, yeah, I just got to blow up, I guess. Yeah, we, we recently had a big discussion about that episode. And I, I mean, I think it, I think it's a, a good episode. I think it's just not necessarily a brilliant way to end the, the whole series. <laughs> yeah, I feel like if, if that were like, you know, episode 14 of 26, you'd be like, oh, that's so fun. They brought Riker and Troy back. That's amazing, you know. But for yeah. the finale, you're like, what? What? <laughs> I love it. Do you think now that um, there's... Well, there's a, a, an animated Star Trek show again and another one on the way. Do you think the animation could be a way to perhaps give Enterprise the, the finale it deserves? Uh, I think Enterprise got the finale that it deserves. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't change it. I wouldn't change it. I, I'm always here for more Enterprise love, though. That's, that's certainly true. Thank you so much, Noah, for joining us. Um, it's been a fantastic Happy to be here. Thanks for thanks for letting me blab on for an hour. I, I you know, I'll I love to do that. 
talk Star Trek for an hour and you guys have to sit and listen. My pleasure. I mean, it's, you know, it's just so awesome for, uh, for Star Trek fans to get to talk to a, a Star Trek actor. It's, you know, you know, so it's, it's funny because I really understand that experience. You know what I mean? Like I understand how exciting it is to get to talk to someone who is on Star Trek. So it's just so much fun to get to be able to participate in that uh, sort of as a fan and as an actor. It's just, it's just awesome. So, so I'm just so happy to be here. Thank you guys for, for having me on. Oh, it's been an absolute yeah. pleasure. Thank you very much to everyone for listening. Um, I hope you've enjoyed this, uh, this episode and we'll see you again soon. Yeah. Thanks everyone. Bye. Thank you. Bye bye. Do you realize how incredible this is? That's tradition. You ever noticed that bum? What? That bum. Oh no! I will say. I will say. Fewer things. Fewer things. Okay. Enough of this self-indulgence. Thank you so much for listening to our podcast. If you want to get in touch with us, our website is www.lowerdecksradio.co.uk. You can reach us on the Twitters at at 10 backward, 10 being the number and backward being the word backward. We're also on Facebook at www.facebook.com forward slash 10 backward podcast. You can also email us at crew at lowerdexradio.co.uk. On a personal individual level, my Twitter is at Will Turland. Rick Everson's Twitter is at TrekFanRick. And Rick Palmer's Twitter is at Mr. Imhotep. Hi, thank you again for listening to the podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, you might consider supporting us. We have now have a Patreon uh, where people can uh, pledge small amounts to fund our ongoing projects like uh, keeping our website up to date, uh, um, new audio equipment as we're going along, and potentially uh, opportunities to expand our content. Uh, you can go look at this at patreon.com forward slash lowerdexradio uh, if you don't feel you can donate but would still like to support us we would love it if you could subscribe to us or however get your podcast through itunes stitcher google play or we're on various third party apps and if you could leave us a review on any of those that would be fantastic and would be very appreciative thanks again for listening and please tune in for more podcasts from the 10 backward crew let's make sure history never forgets the name 10 backward Laddie, don't you think you should rephrase that? Ten backward. Ten backward. But I'm afraid you can't operate under the observational umbrella while you're harboring a wanted criminal named Rin. Mr. Rin's capture. You have to give up Rin. If Mr. Rin has committed serious crimes, let's give up Rin. I want Rin. You have him. Transport Rin to my ship. And bring Mr. Rin to the bridge immediately. Yes, sir.